Get the lowdown on the publishing industry. Listen to Writers on Writing, hosted by Barbara DeMarco Barrett. She talks to anyone who's anyone in publishing. Thursdays, 5 p.m. On KCI FM in Irvine. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. Is the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she sits uh, as an advisor to the state of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's been a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in the U.S. Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, Araldo, Montel, and lots of other shows. She presented her own 90-minute PBS television special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Good evening, Mari. Hi there. We have a great show tonight. I'm really thrilled because I had uh, I didn't get to meet this gentleman, but I've read his quotes in many articles about information privacy and information security. He is the CEO of Privacy Today. We're going to be speaking with Robert Douglas, an information security and privacy expert. He is the founder of Privacy Today. Actually, you can find it at privacytoday.com. Um, and he's located in beautiful Steamboat Springs, Colorado. We love Colorado. Yep. Hey. Rob provides consultation on issues involving all aspects of information security. And during the past eight years, his work has centered on assisting the financial services industry and general business community, government, and even law enforcement agencies to better understand the scope and methodology of different identity crimes. That's That's been a real specialty here, too. Robert has provided uh, a consultation and expert testimony for civil and criminal trials, and he's served as an, a consultant and expert witness for the Federal Trade Commission in the design and execution of Operation Detect Pretext. We're going to be talking about pretexting, which we've heard a lot about in the news lately. And um, he's going to tell us what this Operation Detect Pretext is also. Robert has testified about identity crimes, including homeland security implications. And he's done this before the U.S. Congress on eight occasions. Most recently, he testified before the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives hearings entitled Phone Records for Sale. Why aren't phone records safe from pretexting? You know, that's something we've talked about on the show before. We always worry about that. And we've heard about the Hewlett Packard scandal. We're going to talk about that for those of you who don't know what really happened. He can explain because Rob was um, as was the person who determined the name of one of the information thieves in that case. And he provided that information to the California Attorney General's office, who then, you know, filed uh, against uh, a complaint. Robert is the author of a, of a number of training guides, including Privacy and Customer Information Security, an Employee Awareness Guide, and he did that in 2001, and also Spotting and Avoiding Pretext Calls. So he's our real pretext expert. Um, Robert, are you available right now? <laughs> Certainly am. Well, we are so thrilled that, that you got to uh, come and join us today. I know I've been wanting you on the show for, for several months. So I'm so glad it worked out that we could have you join us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, Robert, tell us, um, what, what do you do as an information security consultant? What exactly do you do? Well, most of my work does uh, center in the area of pretext or what is commonly known as social engineering. So I work on issues where people impersonate consumers, uh, sometimes even impersonate businesses in order to steal 
our personal information, whether it's our social security number, date of birth, uh, or more specifically, phone records, financial records, medical records, um, even things like utility records and post office box information, any type of consumer record out there in a database, there are thieves out there looking for it, and uh, that uh, that has become my area of expertise. Really? Now, Pretex is really lying, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, it, it's uh, that's a nice word uh, for lying. Uh, I, I feel that uh, uh, and the courts have acknowledged that uh, pretext is a form of identity theft, your area of expertise, and uh, uh, it happens thousands of times every day. I mean, one thing that uh, uh, was not quite as apparent even a few years ago was how often this is occurring, how often banking and phone and medical and all those types of records that I've mentioned are stolen each and every day. And with each case that I've uh, worked on since the late 90s, when we've been able to get the underlying records of the companies and the individuals that do this thievery, um, we found that it's a very prolific crime here in the United States. Right. Tell us a little bit about your background before you got into all this pretexting, because I think that's fascinating as well. Well, uh, I was uh, an administration of justice, criminal justice major at Penn State University as an undergrad, and went to Washington, D.C. to law school at the American University School of Law. And while I was in law school, uh, I began working with the Public Defender Service in D.C., representing indigent criminals, mostly working uh, major felonies uh, and specializing in homicide, and discovered that I really loved the investigative world, uh, much more so than uh, the legal world, figured there were enough lawyers out there, and and uh, that I had a knack for the investigative field. So uh, uh, eventually I left law school, became a private investigator, worked for almost 20 years in that field, uh, the first half mostly in street crimes and homicides, the second half uh, white-collar crime, political corruption in Washington, D.C., even a little bit of international terrorism. And during that period, stumbled across um, all of these illicit information brokers and information thieves and even illicit private investigators in my own my own line of work at the time who were stealing and selling all types of records and uh... in a true washington dc uh... story fashion had a neighbor who worked on capitol hill talked about it with that neighbor and next thing i knew in nineteen ninety eight i was testifying in the united states house of representatives and exposing uh... this area of identity theft and that resulted in the passage of a law uh, outlawing the use of pretext specifically when it came to financial records. Okay, so are you talking about the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act? Or that is, that's exactly right, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, uh, which is a also known as the Financial Services Modernization Act. It's a huge law right. uh, that overhauled almost all of the banking laws uh, uh, in this country, but contained therein is a small section that makes it uh, both a civil and a criminal uh, crime to use uh, deceptive practices, pretenses, pretext, lying, uh, either against a financial institution to steal our records or against the customer it's themselves to dupe out of them their own information. Right. Now, even though that's the law, I mean, we know that this happens all the time. Yeah, unfortunately, it, it's still going on all the time. Um, there are not nearly as many websites uh, as when uh, we first started looking at this issue and, and we did Operation Detect Pretext um, after the passage of that law. But if you look uh, carefully enough or know where to look or what words to search, it still takes place. Uh, there still are price lists that uh, move around in the information underground um, and even in this most recent investigation of the theft of phone records that I've worked upon, um, I found uh, a number of sites that are, again, popping up and, and selling banking records. So, yeah, you know, like so many other things, even though there's a law, that doesn't mean that uh, the bad guys stop doing it. Right. And, and remember just, oh, gosh, what was it about four or five years ago when the busboy in New York was able to use pretext calling to uh, steal the identities of Ted Turner, Oprah Winfrey, remember? Yep, the transfer money. Bus boy case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He would use uh, public library computers uh, to gather information. 
Uh, there have been a number of uh, cases like that. James Ronaldo Jackson is another. Uh, he's still in uh, uh, federal lockup, and he also focused on people like Steven Spielberg. Even did a good bit of it uh, over the payphone and in uh, uh, behind prison walls. And uh, they will go to things like the Forbes uh, 500 or the Fortune 500 or right. Who's Who in America and pick names out and begin a pretext, begin impersonating that person to gather enough information. And in both of those cases, the Brooklyn busboy case and the Ronaldo Jackson case, um, actually moved money out of banks over the phone just by pretending to be somebody that they weren't. In the James Ronaldo Jackson case, uh, moved uh, upwards of a million dollars um, out of bank accounts and used that to buy uh, uh, Internet-based, web-based diamonds and have them shipped to a fencing operation, even though he was still in prison. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the Brooklyn busboy was able to transfer, you know, also millions of dollars in brokerage accounts. That's exactly right. Uh, those, those were uh, probably two of the largest cases um, that we've seen, although, uh, you know, an awful lot of this is very difficult to uncover, and it, it goes on all the time. And as you well know, with identity theft year in and year out being the fastest-growing crime in America, uh, the uh, uh, most expensive crime in America at $53 billion in losses each year, and even with more of it taking place offshore with uh, criminal syndicates, uh, you know, it, it, it just never ceases to amaze me how much of this takes place and how creative uh, in a, uh, a criminal way, unfortunately, uh, these folks are that uh, steal our information and steal our money. And, and what's so amazing to me is this busboy. I mean, he didn't have much education. It didn't take much for him to be able to con people. That's right. Both uh, both the Brooklyn busboy and uh, uh, James Ronaldo Jackson uh, had less than a high school education. But what they had, and, and this is really what social engineering is all about. Social engineering is more an art than a science. It's the ability to, particularly when it's done over the phone, to listen as much as to speak. In other words, to listen to the customer call center operator or the consumer at home and figure out how do I press their buttons? What will they respond to? Right. Will this customer call center operator respond to badgering, that if I threaten to close my account, if you don't give me my account number and my balance today, um, you know, will that be the, the button that you can push? Or will it be to call upon their sympathy by saying something like, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here in Steamboat Springs on vacation. I'm just about ready to, to leave. I've got to catch a plane. I'm trying to get a, uh, a mortgage closed. I need this information. I don't have it in front of me because I'm on vacation. Can't you please help me out? Right. <laughs> the, the, the good pretexter, the busboy, the Ronaldo Jacksons of the world, um, uh, they're con artists. I mean, this right. is a crime that goes back to the beginning of time and they're great, great con artists. Yeah, and sociopaths probably make really good uh, pretexters. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. You have really hit a key word here because uh, I'm probably one of uh, uh, a handful of people who's been able to sit down, interview a number of these criminals, including uh, right here in Colorado, a guy by the name of James Rapp, who's one of the few to also go to jail. He was involved in a famous California case uh, where he sold the pager cap codes and phone records of organized crime detectives in Los Angeles to the Israeli mafia, oh, put wow. those officers and their families' lives in jeopardy, uh, and the informants that were paging the officers. And I spent, uh, as part of the congressional investigation this year, I spent uh, half a day interviewing Mr. Rapp at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. And, yeah, in my estimation... He and uh, many of these others are true sociopaths where you and I may see a bright line that divides the, the legal from the illegal, and maybe we differ, you know, a little bit on where that line is. Right. Uh, these con artists, these pretexters, these sociopaths, they don't even see a line. There is no line there at all. And when you sit down and talk to them, they will make very convincing arguments, that's the art of the con, Right. to be convincing, very convincing arguments that what they do is for the greater good of society. 
So whereas James Rapp uh, did serious damage to the John Benet Ramsey murder investigation mm. here in Colorado by stealing records on the, the police officers, the prosecutors, the Ramseys themselves, oh, dear. John Benet's uh, uh, older brother, and selling it to the tabloid media, when I oh. challenged him about that uh, back in April of this year, um, he said, look, you know, I think I know who did it, and I think I could prove it, and I think I was doing the right thing. Well, oh. he's the only one in the world who thinks he was doing the right thing when it came to that, that little girl's murder investigation. Oh, my goodness. So, so how did he, what did he gain out of doing that? Well, a lot of money. And, and the oh, reality because he, is... He sold to the, to the tabloids, you mean, by, by selling them those phone records? He got the, the tabloids to give him a he lot did. of money? Uh-huh. In the JonBenet Ramsey murder case and the Columbine murder investigation and the murder of Enos Cosby, Bill Cosby's son who was uh, murdered on a a freeway outside of L.A., um, and another number of other high-profile cases. He sold that information through a middleman broker uh, based in California to the tabloid press. So when you would go to the supermarket checkout and and get the Inquirer or get the World or get the Globe, those were the types of operations um, that he sold to. And uh, the records at the... CBI here, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, we spent two days going through uh, volume after volume after volume of records of how he ran his operation and uh, all the money he made. He was making a million dollars a year uh, when he was finally taken down, um, as were a number of other cases I've looked at. This is a very, very, unfortunately, profitable um, area, but, but a bad so, one, nonetheless. So, so what was he actually convicted of? Well, um, as we didn't have laws at that time that uh, specifically were on point, he was convicted of racketeering uh, oh, okay. and uh, of criminal impersonation. Okay, uh, good. That's how Colorado dealt with it. And that's actually a trend that we've seen around the country, even uh, quite recently, with uh, the lack of, of uh, appropriate... Uh, spot-on laws, if you will, we've seen prosecutors, including uh, uh, Attorney General Lockyer there in California, have to get somewhat creative in how they bring cases, in that particular instance, in the Hewlett-Packard case, by using identity theft statutes and computer hacking statutes uh, to to go after a lot of these crimes. Right. Well, let's kind of jump over to the Hewlett-Packard case, because that was was really huge, and it was... um it wasn't so, so much the criminal mind tr- trying to uh, get this information, but t- supposedly for the best interest of the corporation. Let's tell our audience who doesn't know about that case what happened in the Hewlett-Packard case. Well, the Hewlett-Packard case um, began when the board of directors of Hewlett-Packard became convinced that they had a mole, that they had a leak uh, amongst their own directors revealing information to the media, the Wall Street Journal, to some of the tech magazines that cover the types of work that Hewlett-Packard does. And uh, they were convinced of this all the way back really into um, early 2005, maybe even a little bit before that. So they began a series of investigations to determine who was the leak. And they did a lot of things. They did some traditional investigative methods. They um, had a, a, a very famous California lawyer by the name of Larry Sonsini, who was outside counsel uh, to Hewlett Packard, sit down with the individual directors and confront them and ask them if you know if they were leaking information. Um, and that first phase of the operation, uh, which was carried out with mostly lawful and traditional investigative methods, did not reveal uh, the source of the leak. Uh, fast forward into 2006 and uh, late 2005, early 2006, they once again became convinced that information was being leaked to the media, and they used a chain of outside investigators, uh, some in Boston, some in Florida, and then some individual uh, investigators scattered around the country to uh, obtain the phone records of members of the board of directors, uh, of key employees in management who had access to the types of information that was being revealed, and then even to the reporters themselves that covered that beat and, believe it or not, even some of the family members of the reporters 
<laughs> so they, uh, in essence, stole, I'll, I'll use that word, yeah. they stole the phone records um, of several dozen people in order to try to see, okay, who's speaking to this particular reporter uh, in this particular time frame. Um, they even planted, uh, uh, for lack of a better phrase, uh, bugs onto emails that were sent to the reporters, tracking bugs uh, using... Uh, oh, uh, spyware, p- spyware. Huh? Yeah, in essence, spyware, uh, uh, to uh, usually actually using the Adobe Acrobat software, uh, hmm. but uh, using it in a fashion so they could see who else read those emails. So they had an attachment with the email, and any time someone else received that attachment it would notify the Hewlett-Packard investigators who had looked at it. So they got uh, a a little too creative for their own good, Hmm. um, and uh, in essence uh, it became apparent through one of the board members uh, revealing it through the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, and then going public with it, that uh, their phone records had been stolen, and that sparked uh, both a state of California investigation and a federal investigation. And they truly felt that their invasion, their privacy was invaded, and there's a civil lawsuit filed as well, correct? Yeah, there, there, there's, there's going to be a lot of litigation out of this. You have uh, the criminal suit, or the criminal case, obviously, right? Uh, with a number of uh, senior people in Hewlett-Packard, Packard, right up to uh, the former chairwoman of the board, Patricia right. Dunn. Uh, and the, the attorney, right? Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you had, uh, of all people, their ethics attorney uh, was uh, also indicted. And then you had a number of investigators scattered around the country uh, that were indicted as well and are charged with identity theft and computer intrusion laws. And as you uh, rightly point out, uh, uh, there's civil litigation, and I, I suspect we're just at the beginning of that as one of the common methods for civil attorneys is to first wait and see what happens with the criminal case um, and as that right. plays out and they use that as discovery um, I suspect we will see uh, more uh, civil cases come out of this as well. Right, so this pretexting was done by investigators on behalf of the, you know the corporation which yeah. you don't think of as the criminal people that we were talking about before which are doing it to commit identity theft. These were doing it to find out information, although the investigators, in effect, did commit identity theft, pretending to be the, uh, you know, the, the holders of the phone uh, records, right? Well, that, that's exactly right. And, and you know, the, the sad thing here is that this actually takes place quite a bit every day. These types of corporate investigations are relatively routine, and I am somewhat sympathetic to some of the executives at Hewlett Packard, because although they should have done their homework and they've got you know the the the, the resources to hire and do hire an army of attorneys, um, and there was enough out there uh, both in the law in previous case history, uh, and you know it's not a coincidence. It seems to me that literally as this was unfolding at Hewlett-Packard in the beginning of this year, what was happening? We were having hearings in Congress. I and a number of other people were testifying on February 1st in the House, February 8th in the United States Senate, specifically on the issue of phone record pretexting. And yet, in that precise time frame, that's exactly what was taking place at Hewlett-Packard. But I I, I do want to come back to, and I think it's important, uh, for your listeners to understand that this does take place all the time in corporations, most often in uh, corporate espionage cases, in uh, uh, non-compete investigations, do not uh, do not disclose investigations, where the corporation feels maybe they have a key employee that is negotiating with another company to jump ship, um, and they want to know if they're talking to that company. So, you know, I've acknowledged before that when I was a private investigator, it was not unusual to get requests from some of the biggest-name corporations in this country to, you know, do whatever it takes, quote-unquote, to find out who they're talking to. Well, while it can be very tempting to jump to these types of records and to steal the records, it's not right and it's illegal. And and the the problem that Hewlett-Packard really uh, illuminates, I think, 
is nobody, actually there was one person who sent an email up the chain and is sort of my hero, I can't remember his name at this point, but other than that one person saying, you know, wait a second, let's put the brakes on here, this could backfire on us, you know, are you sure you want to be doing this? Everybody else was just full steam ahead and putting little code names on the investigation and, you know, we had a bunch of magnum PI wannabes <laughs> and somehow management uh, got wrapped up in this and, you know, they, they suffered tremendous reputational harm all over what? A newspaper leak. I mean, that, that's a little silly. And, and especially because HP had won an award for being one of the most um, privacy-conscious <laughs> uh, companies, and uh, the former privacy officer, Barb Lawler, uh, was the privacy office was not informed of what was going on. Now they are. But at that time, they were not involved in this investigation, and it, that wasn't brought to them. And my understanding is now the, the new privacy officer, and Barbara went on to be the privacy officer for Intuit, but um, the privacy office, the, you know, the chief privacy officer was really not involved in this, and, and that's my understanding at least. Well, I, I think that's right. Uh, I think uh, uh, the facts and the evidence that we know to date, a good bit of it revealed uh, during uh, the congressional investigation and the subsequent hearings uh, that were held in Congress um, is that a number of people, including uh, the the, uh, the privacy officers uh, who should have been involved in this, weren't. And um, you know, I consult with a number of major corporations around the country, and I, I, I had a discussion with a client. Um, I was down doing a presentation with a with a client, and we were at lunch and. I said, you know, I, I sometimes wonder that if you don't hit a certain size where you just become inefficient and, and unable to really know who's doing what. And that really is the case. And it, it's something that um, every company is really going to need to guard against. I'm, I'm sure in, in other programs you've talked about a lot of the changes that we've seen over the last four or five years, you know, probably beginning with Gramm-Leach-Bliley, the regulations that have come out of that, the FACTA Act, and a number of the of the new laws that are out there and the regulations that get promulgated, well, it's now incumbent upon uh, corporations to understand these laws. That's why you see more and more um, having officers with titles of chief privacy officer, or at least if they're a smaller corporation, maybe their general counsel has an associate general counsel that is tagged um, with those responsibilities. Because if you don't understand these areas, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble, and, and I think uh, Hewlett-Packard is a great example of that, although, you know, I, I think as the evidence plays out, and I don't think we would have the indictments that we have if there wasn't evidence to at least argue to a jury that, you know what, there were warning signs along the line here, and, and people... Not only did they go through the yellow lights, they went through the flashing red light right. out of their zeal to determine, you know, who was this leaker. It became a personal um, battle of personalities within that boardroom that, that really got out of control. We're speaking with Robert Douglas, who is CEO and founder of Privacy Today. You can learn more about his testimony and his uh, great work at privacytoday.com. He's also an information security expert, and he's talking to us today about pretexting, and we've been talking about the HP incident um, that that was uh, really in the news and continues to be in the news. Let me ask you something. So, you know, on one hand, you said you had a lot of sympathy for uh, the company wanting to find out who was leaking sensitive and confidential information to the to the media. Um, what about transparency? What about the fact? Uh, what about if um, they would have done something like this? Tell all of the board members. Look, we know somebody's leaking, and uh, we want you to authorize uh, your phone records to be given to us for the last five months. Well, that certainly would have been the way to go. Now, they did in the, in the first part of the investigation back in 2005. They did confront or speak with each director one-on-one, -on -one and, and uh, Attorney uh, Sonsini testified uh, that that was the role that he played uh, in that earlier investigation. But you're right, that they, uh, they certainly could have gone to those members, asked for them to voluntarily 
turn over their phone records uh, and perhaps made determinations along those lines, or maybe that would have uh, flushed out uh, uh, the individual who was actually doing it. And we now know that was George Keyworth, and and uh, uh, he has admitted publicly to that fact. Um, but you know, it may have worked. It may not have worked. It, it, those investigations can be difficult. I think where. But if they uh, would have asked, asked, you know, again, w- we really believe somebody's doing it. We ask that you, you know, to show your innocence or whatever you want to say. You know, we ask that you submit your phone records. And right, if the, they the refuse, becomes, what if they said no? And well, what if they if said, no, said no, and and if they would have said no, then they would have said, if you know, they would have said no. But maybe only one would have said no. And then well, they would have asked him. You know what I mean? But I think that's right. And and uh, but I, you know, but I think the problem is even before that. I, I think and and. But didn't they also the get the investigation- phone records of of journalists as well? That's yeah, they did. And, yeah. And, I mean, that's that's where they really went uh, overboard. And, sure. And, and what happens? Um, and, and I've run into this a lot in in fighting this fight over the last eight or nine years is you get investigators out there who, number one, and and this is a a very important point, when you're dealing with people who will use pretexts, as you pointed out, lying, who will lie to get information, well, as I like to say, they lie on both ends of the transaction. They lie to steal the records, and they will lie to the client or the potential client and tell them what they're doing is perfectly legal. (laughs) You know, what's mind-blowing, as we sit here, as we sit here, there are websites out there, one that I can think of specifically, of one of the companies that was investigated by Congress that took the Fifth Amendment when they, every single one of them took the Fifth. They all tell their clients what they do is perfectly legal, but not one of them would testify under oath about how they do it, because they know it's not. Right. Um, they all took the Fifth, and yet this one company that was a prominent player still has a website up where he is still advertising phone record information that I know is obtained by pretext because there's no other way to get it. But he thinks that law enforcement and Congress and others, because it doesn't specifically say phone record bill or phone record details, um, and it says things like CNA, which means customer name and address, or disconnected phone numbers, internal phone numbers, Mexican phone numbers, Canadian phone numbers, and all the rest, he thinks that he's still bamboozling the world, and maybe he is. Uh, that there is just not a very deep understanding on the part of our legislators, both at the state and federal level, about the full extent of these practices that we're talking about and how pervasive and invasive they have become. Let me ask you something, Robert. You, you know, when I was reading your bio, you helped the Federal Trade Commission in the design and execution of Operation Detect Pretext. Right. And that was a sting operation to, to catch and prosecute offenders participating in, you know, that, that illegal information industry that you're talking, information broker industry that we're talking about. Right. So h- how did that work? I mean... Well, what what we did was, after uh, President Clinton had signed the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act in November of 1999, um, not much happened, in fact. And I was called back in an oversight hearing by then-Congressman Jim Leach out of Iowa, who chaired the Financial Services Committee, for an oversight hearing to say, okay, you know, what's happening? Has, Has the FTC moved on this? And the reality was nobody had moved on it. And there were just as many websites and just as much illegal activity so as a result of that uh, that testimony, I was retained by the Federal Trade Commission as a consultant and expert witness. And the first thing we did was we scoured the web and yellow pages and legal and investigative trade journals. A lot of these folks are advertising right in the legal trade journals. Right. Um, all across the country, and I kid you not, we, we quit counting. There's a press release the FTC still has up on its website about this. We quit counting when we had found 1,500 individual companies that were selling Americans' banking records. By that, I mean checking, savings, IRAs, investments, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you name it. They were stealing all of this. Well, the next thing we did was we spent the better part of a summer where I sat with two interns, two young female interns at the FTC um, in a small room. Uh, We... uh, Uh, got phone numbers that appeared to come from all over the country, and we started calling these companies and recording them. And 
we recorded close to 200 of the companies uh, that almost without exception, there, there may have been, I don't know, 10 that uh, uh, when we approached them and clearly asked for illegally obtained information, said, no, no, I can't do that. Every other one of them was willing to do it. And all that really mattered was, would our credit card clear and how quickly could they get paid? So what, did you do? Yeah, so what did you guys do about that? Well, 200 of those, those 200 got warning letters from the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah, for a deceptive then, practice, yeah. Yeah, and, and then what we did was when they, many of them ignored the warning letters, we then stung 10 of them. Um, I had a client at that time that was a, a major regional bank in the Mid-Atlantic, um, and they were kind enough to allow us to set up in their security offices, and then we, we planted information with these firms and recorded them calling into the bank to steal banking information, and eventually we prosecuted three um, of those companies uh, civilly under the uh, Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act and also under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. All three of them uh, came to the table and folded and, and agreed to stop doing what they were doing. It was a successful operation on the one hand. On the other, I was quite disappointed that they only prosecuted three and that until this whole phone records issue came up uh, and renewed the interest in pretexting this year, um, not much more was, was really done uh, to, to continue to go after these companies. So whereas See, what's aggravating is that under Gremlich-Bliley, and it's funny because we were both kind of doing similar things. I, I spoke at the White House right before Gremlich-Bliley passed because I was asking for opt-in instead of opt-out mm-hmm. and all sorts of similar things talking about identity theft. But, you know, it, it, to me, it, there's just not enough... Um, resources for the Federal Trade Commission to do all that they need to do, and Gramm-Leach-Bliley specifically omitted a private right of action so that, you know, people who are harmed by this cannot sue these companies. So if the Federal Trade Commission doesn't take action against them, really nothing is done. Well, that that's right, and, and uh, this issue has been revisited in the Federal Trade Commission in the hearings uh, back in February uh, pleaded uh, with Congress to give them more power, uh, even in the area of the amount that they can find. They, their hands are, are quite tied. Um, I know, uh, without naming names, a number of reporters who cover the Federal Trade Commission on a regular basis have told me, look, the, you know, the FTC Act, the founding act, uh, uh, was probably intentionally written to make that a somewhat neutered agency uh, so that they could not uh, uh, have the power necessary to carry out, you know, they, they have just such a broad array of issues that they deal with, whether it's spam, identity theft, all types of... Uh, Privacy issues, yeah. Exactly. All of them. I mean, yeah. They, 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 as an agency, there's probably no agency that has a broader array of issues that it needs to deal with and is more handcuffed both uh, in its budget uh, and its an ability to bring true uh, uh, punishment, if you will, to the bad actors it deals with. So routinely you see them simply settle cases where if the bad actor says, you know what, I won't do it again, I'll be a good little boy and girl, right. um, uh, and, and everybody walks away, and, and of course that, that's somewhat of a joke. Yeah. It, it, it is real frustrating because I, I deal a lot with the Federal Trade Commission and, and have testified for them, too. And I think, you know, they, they would like to do more, but they just don't have the resources. Well, there's no doubt they'd like to do more and, and that, that handicap both in resources and I think equally as much in uh, the lack of true power to do anything once they catch someone plays into the equation of them often not taking a lot of these cases on because they feel, you know, what's the point? Now, I, I can't speak for them, uh, but I certainly worked with a number of attorneys there. I'm in contact with a number of people, even at the highest levels there, on a regular basis. And, you know, it can be a very frustrating place to be, I think.
Yeah, absolutely. Let me introduce you again. We are so fortunate to be speaking with Robert Douglas, who is um, the CEO of Privacy Today. You can see more about him at privacytoday.com, and he's an information security expert focusing quite a bit lately and on pretexting, and we're going to be talking a little bit more on that. You know, I, I had noticed that you were very involved in the Amy Boyer case, and we've talked a little bit about that case before on this show, and um, I remember when this whole it was it was the most tragic case and in fact i i recently read what you had written why has congress failed amy and i'd like you to tell my audience and re refresh their memory about the amy boyer case and what happened with her amy was a uh, 20 year old uh, student she was going to college part time and working part time as a dental hygienist in uh, nashua new hampshire and unbeknownst to her or her family or any of her loved ones, um, a former high school classmate that no one really thinks Amy knew at the time by the name of Liam Ewens uh, had a, a perverse infatuation uh, with Amy. And actually, for the better part of a year, he documented uh, on the Internet, on a, way, a website that he named for Amy, uh, his intent to kill Amy, uh, to carry out a Columbine-style massacre at Nashua High School. I mean, just all this anger and rage and photographs of him and his guns and, and uh, just, you know, he, he was an individual who clearly had mental problems, who felt that the whole world um, had done him wrong. And for some reason, uh, and it wasn't even clear from the pages and pages and pages on his website, all of this was vented at Amy. Yeah, well, I think that he, he cared for her, and he loved her, and, and she didn't know who he was. Yeah, that, I mean, in, that was in my understanding. way. Yeah, yeah. That, you yeah. Know, he, he thought he had feelings for her. But, right. And, of course, Amy had, you know, uh, had a very steady boyfriend at the time. Sure. Well, in, in uh, uh, October uh, uh, of 1999, uh, Liam became more and more intent on figuring where could he kill Amy and, and track her down. And I, I say October of 99 with emphasis because, remember, November of 99 is when uh, President Clinton signed Graham Leach-Bliley. Right. Uh, and the company that sold over the Internet to Liam Ewens, Amy's information, her Social Security number, her date of birth, her home address, and her employment address, that last piece, being very important to my work because it was obtained with pretext right. uh, by a woman named Michelle Gambino out of New York City who called Amy's mother, impersonated an insurance company, said that she had a refund uh, for Amy and needed to know her place of employment to process the refund. So right. as Amy's mother, uh, Helen Remsburg, says, I was made an accomplice to my own daughter's murder what by providing the key hmm. piece of information. Well. And the that's company got a, that, that Michelle got sold that through horrible. was called DocuSearch.com. Right. DocuSearch.com was the cover story of Forbes magazine when November of 1999. So literally as DocuSearch was stealing Amy's information, giving it to her killer so he could track her down and kill her outside of her place of employment on October 15, 1999, a beautiful Friday afternoon as she left with her coworkers, uh, at that same point, Dan Cohn, DocuSearch, uh, Michelle Gambino were being featured in Forbes magazine, the preeminent business magazine of this country, as this great company, DocuSearch, that could get anything about anybody. And to this day, to this day, the gall of it, they continue to advertise that Forbes magazine article as a badge of honor on the DocuSearch.com oh, website. Oh, God. Oh. And Michelle Gambino, she comes full circle. She shows up uh, during this congressional investigation of stolen phone records for having stolen the phone records of a man by the name of Adam Music uh, in uh, New York City as part of what? A corporate espionage investigation very similar to Hewlett-Packard. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, these same individuals that uh, got Amy killed, and, and, of course, there have been a series of, of murders that go back even to the late 80s and early 90s, specifically in California, uh, with the attacks on uh, the actresses uh, Rebecca Schaefer and Teresa Saldana that played a major role in the passage of the Driver's Privacy Protection Act right. uh, and, and other privacy laws. Well, 
we keep passing the laws, but we're not doing enough to go after these companies. I, I currently uh, am consulting on another murder case, I'm sorry to say, in Pennsylvania, where a retired businessman who had just finished his career, bought his dream home with his wife, sat down to Sunday night dinner, and a former deranged employee uh, bought through a private investigator, sight unseen, just called up, gave a credit card number, mm. and bought the new home address of uh, Bill Berkeheiser and showed up on his door on a Sunday evening and, and killed him when he answered the door. Mm. Um, so these cases are taking place um, on a regularly uh, routine basis across the country, and yet we're having so much difficulty um, getting state uh, and federal legislatures to pass meaningful legislation with stiff criminal penalties uh, for those who steal and sell our personal information. Yeah, you know, Rob, I just recently did a program with the Orange County Sheriff for a group of uh, presidents of companies, and um, they wanted us to show how vulnerable they were, you know. So one of the presidents of this World Presidents Organization gave us uh, the authority to just go in and do, you know, look and see what we could find on him. And of course, I, one of the show, things that I showed on this PowerPoint presentation to this whole group was we did a background. We uh, just typed into Yahoo um, background check, okay? Sure. And 180 million sites came up, you know, <laughs> for right, links. Exactly. And we literally were able to find out anything on this guy um, for very little, all right, um, without even having, you know, then we, of course, did the the one from the, the sheriff, the, um, the accurate from uh -huh. LexisNexis, and found out even more. But basically, we could have bought stuff without having the uh, subscription service, enough to find out his personal phone number, his cell phone number, anything that we wanted to find out about him, we could find out about him. And, of course, where he lives, and he is a you know CEO of a company, that he also could be the target of, like you're talking about, the gentleman that was killed in in. Uh, in you know, in your area. Well, that's that's right. You know, and I, I think one of the things that I, I try to get across all the time when I testify or do presentations around the country is we've only scratched the surface. I, I, uh, I can say with uh, uh, complete certainty that no one in the country has looked at as many records of pretext operations as I have um, over the last eight years. And and I'll tell you a true story. When I was retained in the Boyer case uh, by David Gottesman, uh, the attorney that represented yeah, I spoke uh, with him. Uh -huh. her estate, um, and I, I went to New Hampshire and uh, on many occasions, but in the first occasion spent about half a week up there looking through thousands and thousands of records that the court had ordered DocuSearch to turn over. And I quickly could tell that there was such volume that they sold anything to anybody I went down one day, I was, I was up in their law firm library, I went down and I said, David, I said, I'm going to find another Amy in these records. I'm, I'm convinced of it, that, that this company, just it's got to be here. Right. Well, I didn't realize how prescient I was. Um, had we gone to trial, uh, they eventually settled. Right. But had we gone to trial, uh, we would have presented evidence that exactly one week before they sold Amy's information to her killer, Liam, they had used the same ruse or attempted to use the same ruse, the same pretext, on a woman in Texas. Only in that case, the mother smoked him out. The mother knew there was a restraining order against a man who was trying to kill this young woman down there and, you know, called their bluff, called them on their pretext, and, uh, you know, told them they should be ashamed of themselves and hung up the phone. Oh, so the pretexter... Uh sent, I kid you not, sent an email back to the DocuSearch headquarters to Dan Cohn and Kenneth Zeiss, Kenneth Zeiss, co-owner but convicted felon in the state of Florida, uh, hmm. sent an email saying, hey, watch out for this one. He's trying to harm this woman. One week later, they used the same ruse on another woman and, you know, as if they don't even care. Point being, they knew their website was being used by people uh, to create harm, to stalk people, to, to attempt to harm people, 
and they didn't give a damn. All they cared about, and, and we would have been able to prove yeah. that all that mattered was, Money. will the credit card clear? Right. So here they were on notice. They absolute were absolutely notice. On notice. So, so it's almost, you know, a conspiracy or a compliance or, you know, an accomplice, so to well, speak. Well, you know, and the, and the thing is, and, and I, I want to be sure to get this out, look, every day... Thousands of private investigators do great work around this country. Right. They help apprehend criminals. Um, they find missing people. They, they help uh, in the collection of debts. They do very, very important work. I did it for 20 years myself. Mm-hmm. Every day around this country, legitimate information brokers provide information to police agencies and other government agencies that help solve crimes. Right. That is very important in this information age. But we have to recognize that there are people who will use that same information to do harm. And, and my sort of latest cause, if you will, is to try to wake up the private investigative industry. You've got a pretty good outfit there with Cali, uh, the California Association of Legal Investigators right. in California that's more responsible than most. But even there, to wake up these associations, to start doing some self-policing, just like the legal profession that you belong to, self-polices. Yeah, but you know what? Self-regulation, we have seen over and over, doesn't work. Well, I'll tell you what, I'd be thankful for just a little bit. (laughs) Right. Because these PIs know who the bad ones are. Exactly. The sad thing is... And it gives them a bad name. Well, the sad thing is, and I can back it up and I can prove it, uh, and I've got the written, written documentation, some of the same people that go to Congress and represent those industries and say, hey, wait a second, you need us, don't, don't stop pretext because we're doing it for all these good reasons, are the same ones that are doing it uh, with illegal uh, 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 access to information. So there's a real uh, two-faced uh, stance taking place by uh, some of these agencies and some of these associations, and that needs to be revealed. Um, I've revealed a good bit of it to Congress behind the scenes, to the point that, that many congressional aides tell me that uh, uh, these associations that come and lobby Congress, uh, their, their words are falling on deaf ears um, because they realize that they are also supporting a lot of the activities that take place. You know, last year I testified in Congress uh, for uh, Senator Bill Nelson um, on his S-500, which was a bill that was introduced to try and regulate the information brokers and what it the intent, in fact, I testified with, you know, the big guys, Axiom, LexisNexis, and ChoicePoint, and, and others were there, Epic was there, and we were, what what basically S500 was trying to do was set up a similar process for the information brokers as we have with credit reporting agencies, which was that there would be a permissible purpose, that those people who were being investigated would know when somebody's investigating them, you know, so there would be an inquiry and a similar situation so that people who would know what is being sold about them and and would know when someone is accessing their information and that there would be some oversight so that not just anybody can buy anything on anybody. And well, um, that went, that kind of died, and I'm, I'm wondering now with the new uh, legislature, which is, you know, Bill Nelson is a Democrat, and I'm just wondering now that there are more Democrats there to back him up if, if that has any chance. Well, uh, I, I think that we certainly are going to see a renewed interest in a reexamination of a number of these issues uh, with the Democrats having taken both houses of Congress. Uh, uh, based upon what I'm hearing from aides, particularly in the Senate, um, I have no doubt that many of these issues are going to come up again. Uh, specifically, Senator Bill Nelson uh, uh, has been showing a lot of leadership in this area. Um, and I know in, in the area that I follow most closely, uh, pretext, I would expect to see um, an introduction of a comprehensive uh, bill uh, early next session. Uh, have little doubt that that will occur. Um, now, that was just attempted in your state there in California um, and was defeated. Um, uh, lobbying on the part of the uh, MPAA, the Motion Picture uh, Association, right. uh, defeated that, even though uh, the bill, the, a broad anti-pretext bill is what I'm talking about, right. uh, was moving through the California legislature uh, relatively unopposed. Uh, last-minute lobbying uh, killed that. Um, there are many uh, 
false arguments that are put forward uh, by the investigative community as to why they need the ability to steal records. And, and we have to start, and I, I think you pointed this out at the beginning of the interview kind of gently, uh, we really need to start calling this for what it is. We need to stop saying pretext and social engineering, and we need to call it for what it is, identity theft and stealing, because that's what's taking place. And, you know, I, 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 I hearken all the way back to 98 when some of the same uh, jokers who, who show up and testify about how we need the use of pretext to, you know, help missing children, although they can almost never produce any case where that's actually assisted in finding a missing child when they're, when they're confronted with that, um, when they presented those arguments to Congressman Jim Leach, and, he, and Congressman Leach mumbled, but it was audible on the microphones, have they ever heard of the Constitution? <laughs> um, meaning, you know, there we have things called subpoenas. We have things called warrants. We have things called court orders. Uh, and all of those are available in any of these situations. And, you know, there's a darn good reason that for more than 200 years, you know, we've used those amendments uh, known as the Bill of Rights to the Constitution to protect individuals, that we don't just rummage through uh, the records of people in this country. And yet there is a, a, a belief that continues to be argued by many of these private investigators who, who tend to think that they are judge, jury, and executioner all wrapped up in one, that they should be able to steal records. And, it, you know, it, again, as Congressman Leach said, I can remember it to this day back in 98, uh, to, the, to the PI Association representative, do you actually think we're going to legislate for one industry to use fraud against another? <laughs> because that's what it is. I mean, exactly. if I hold myself out as you in order to obtain your banking or phone or medical records, right. that's fraud. It is. That, that is the most common definition of fraud there is. And yet that is, in essence, what they're asking for. And what it really boils down to is it's just a lot easier. And what they've developed the technique, and they're pretty good at it, they can charge a lot more money. And, and I, I've seen enough cases. I've been through enough files. I know James Rapp was making a million. I know that Dan Cohen and Kenneth Zeiss, co-owners of DocuSearch, they were grossing more than a million dollars a year. They had to turn over their tax returns to us. Um, you know, even a small operation now being prosecuted by the Texas Attorney General, but the company is located here uh, uh, in Colorado, gave a video deposition to the Texas AG, and this one guy, he acknowledged he's making close to a million dollars a year. And that's what it's all about. It, it's, it's not really about uh, uh, assisting missing children and the rest. It's about right. making money in an easy fashion. Exactly. Well, Robert, Lloyd is giving me the high sign that we've just got a couple minutes left. I'd like you to give your website again and quickly tell us what we can find. And we're going to have to have you back and uh, tell us about your new uh, testimony that you're going to provide to Congress. Well, I'd love to come back anytime. And my website is privacytoday.com. Uh, what you'll find on there on the home page are links to the latest news stories and and issues from the privacy world. Uh, there's everything there that can help both businesses and consumers. Um, and if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll find uh, the various testimonies that I've given in Congress, uh, a number of the uh, news articles that I've appeared, uh, appeared in around the country, and, of course, a bio and a resume and the types of work that I've been doing uh, both in the corporate and the consumer world uh, for the last eight years. And we're so glad that you're doing the great work that you're doing. We really appreciate you. That's why I've been wanting to get you on, because I've been reading your testimony. I'm saying, yes, I agree with everything you're doing, and I really honor you for that tremendous effort. Well, so thank you, and let me uh, return that compliment. <laughs> you obviously are very well known across the country, and I've, I've followed your career for many years, so it's great to talk to you in person, and I'd be happy to come back and talk about uh, other issues with you at any time. Well, terrific. Thank you so much. And uh, you've been listening now to uh, a wonderful expert on all sorts of security issues, Robert Douglas, who is the uh, 
CEO and founder of Privacy Today. You can see him at privacytoday.com. And you've been listening to Privacy Piracy. I'm the host, Mari, and my great engineer helping me is Lloyd. We have a website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can hear all of our previous interviews right there. You can also download our podcasts, listen to our podcasts, see our upcoming guests, and even write us an email. So we've even heard from people from Nova Scotia. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll be with us next Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.